Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello. Hello. You're listening to week 41 of Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. And my name's Craig Fields. And I am David Long. Happy New Year, everyone. This is our first episode back after Christmas and New Year's. And this year, as always, we'll be going out of our way to see all the films in the cinema, even the bad ones, so you don't have to. Uh, David, how was the holiday period for you? Well, a very happy new year to you, Craig, and obviously a very happy new year to all of our listeners. It was very, very festive. Um, I enjoyed it. I ate a lot of food. I am now back on my diet. New year, new me, all that hogwash. So what kind of diet you're on this time? Um, so I'm going to describe it as a, as a keto diet, the old sort of Atkins diet. So I'm trying to cut out carbs, eat lots of meat, lots of fresh fish, vegetables... Um, just trying to cut out things like donuts, you know, McDonald's, McDonald's pasties. Oh yeah. You know, we've both got Monzo yes. um, and you can click on your transactions and it tells you how much you've spent. I spent, I think 600 pounds in McDonald's last year. Just in last year, not overall since having Monzo. Oh, maybe it's since having Monzo, yeah. Yeah, so that's um, a lot of money still, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And people will go, £600 in McDonald's, that's outrageous. But what the Monzo app does brilliantly, I don't know why I'm plugging it, but I am, um, is it tells <laughs> you exactly what you've spent and it tallies it up. And yeah. when you, you know, a £10 in McDonald's here, a £1.99 burger there, and I was fond of those, and it does all add up. It really does. Now, I love Monzo as well. It is, it is brilliant. Maybe they can sponsor us as well. Like all Maybe the other they previous... can, along with Amazon and various other people. Yeah. Um, as you know as well, on Christmas Day, uh, I celebrated two years sobriety. Yes, um, congratulations. Happy yeah, birthday I, for that. Thank you very much. And I just wanted to take this opportunity on air to thank Craig for his wonderful support throughout that journey. Oh, um, mate, you don't have to thank me for it. It's I, I wouldn't, have been able to, wouldn't have been able to do it without him. And, you know, my life is so much better for my sobriety. And I'm so thankful for Craig and his wonderful support. How was your Christmas? It was delightfully quiet and, uh, you know, spent with all the family, just as yours was more than likely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just what I needed, really, um, before getting back into the hot seat, which is what we're doing today. Mm. We are in the hot seat and it is lovely and toasty in here. Very mild, isn't it, for January? It is. A very mild winter. Snow is going to come at some point. We know it will. Oh, it will. And the country will, as always, grind to a halt <laughs> as we are completely incapable of dealing with the white powder. Yeah. Um, should we crack on with the show then? Let us do that and we'll begin it in our usual way with the box office rundown. No? No, we've, we've just missed out what's coming up on this week's show. Oh, goodness <laughs> gracious me. I apologise again for my tomfoolery. That's all right. Well, anyway, coming up on this week's show, uh, the we have Sam Mendes' World War One epic 1917, which stars Dean Charles Chapman, George McKay, Daniel Mays, Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch and Richard Madden, to name but a few there. We'll then follow up the World War One drama with a World War Two satire, Jojo Rabbit, from writer and director Taiki Watiti, starring Roman Griffin Davis, Thomasin McKenzie, Scarlett Johansson, Sam Rockwell, Rebel Wilson, Alfie Allen, Stephen Merchant, Arfie, Art, Archie Yates, uh, and Taiki Watiti as adults. That's a huge cast as well, isn't that it? That is a massive cast, brilliant cast as well. Uh, so Greta Gerwig returns with her adaptation of the beloved Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. 
It stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, Laura Dern and Timothy Chalamet. Guy Ritchie returns with The Gentleman, starring Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Michelle Dockerhey, uh, Hugh Grant, Henry Golding, Colin Farrell and Jeremy Strong. Dwayne Johnson, Jack Black, Kevin Hart and Karen Gillan return for Jumanji The Next Level. Um, then it's time for our review of Cats, directed <laughs> by Tom Cooper with, believe it or not, Jennifer Hudson, Judy Dench, Taylor Swift, Jason Derulo, James Corden, Rebel Wilson and Idris Elba. And not a single one of them could save this film oh, all right. from being an absolute disaster. Let's wait for the main review. I couldn't resist. I do apologise. I'm sure you said Tom Cooper as well. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Tom Hooper. <laughs> <laughs> I apologise, Mr. Hooper. It's all right. Uh, Then David will be rounding the show off with a hand solo review of Spies in Disguise, which stars Will Smith and Tom Holland. So it is a packed out, uh, real mix and a certainly action packed show today. It is indeed. And now it is time. Unlike earlier when I got it wrong, I do (laughs) apologise. We're in the new year. We're, We're still a bit rusty back in the studio. But it is now, alas, time for the box office rundown. This is the Box Office Rundown, brought to you by Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. Yes, that's right. It's the weekend box office for the 27th to the 29th of December 2019. Uh, So we're going to kick off with number 10, and that's Playing With Fire. Uh, That grossed at the weekend £517,000 with a total gross of over £2 million. Uh, We haven't seen this movie, unless you've seen it. I don't recall. I have not. No, uh, I know it stars John Cena. Uh, mm. It's kind of um, a hark back almost to the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger days where he did Kindergarten Cop. Yes, very much so. Um, those sort of things where men who um, are sort of action heroes, really, that mm. then somehow have to look after children. Um, it's sort of that old school kind of movie where men apparently can't look after children, but then they get a chance yeah. to. I, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen the film, so it might work. It might not. Yeah, neither me and Craig have seen this. Unfortunately, it's in really busy time over the Christmas period. If you have seen Playing with Fiverr, Fiverr? I can't <laughs> talk today. If you have seen Playing with Fire, please do drop us an email or a tweet. Let us know what you thought of it, and we will happily read it out on the show if I can actually talk. In at number nine, we have Cats, and have a listen to these numbers. Um, at the weekend, it grossed one million. Uh, and £31,218. It's got a total gross of £10 million, and that is an absolute catastrophe, Craig. Let me put that into perspective for you. It had a reported budget of £95 million. That's around £72 million. And it's looking at a $70 million loss. This is a huge disaster at the box office. It is 
it is lost a serious amount of money. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't put that into perspective, but it must be one of the worst performing films of recent years. It has absolutely bombed. Mm, absolutely. Uh, we're going to be reviewing this film on this week's episode, so we won't say any more, but we will delve closer into why absolutely. this has happened. Uh, in at number eight, we have Spies in Disguise. That grossed at the weekend um, over £1 million pounds, uh, for a total gross of over £4 million. Pounds. Uh, David will be going Han Solo on this week's episode uh, with reviewing this movie. Yes, I will. In at number seven, we have Frozen 2. It's grossed just over £50 million pound in total. Both me and Craig have seen it. We reviewed it on uh, week 40 of Is It Worth It? The Film Review podcast. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought the... The script, the storyline was better than the first one, yep. but the music wasn't as good as the first one. But overall, Frozen 2 was a very pleasing sequel to a very successful, if not slightly overrated, original. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on, on that. Uh, so moving on, number six, Andre Rea. Uh, he's 70 years young concert, uh, which was only in the cinema for one day. So it grossed over £1 million. So um, that's a total gross as well. We didn't get round to seeing this. We don't usually review things like this. So no. uh, it's not something that we will talk about on the podcast. But David, number five. In at number five, we have Jojo Rabbit, which again, we will be reviewing on uh, this week show uh, so far it's only been out for a week or so and it grossed in that week just near near enough two and a half million pounds um, so a fairly successful opening uh, and we will be reviewing that on today's show yeah and um, so these figures are from the last weekend of December yeah. so we don't have the obviously weekend takings from this weekend uh, that we're currently recording from um, so I, I will I've, I would think that that total gross will go up oh, quite significantly yeah. Yeah. Um, over the uh, the, the forthcoming. Yeah, because that was literally the a two million, a two and a half million pound opening weekend. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in at number four, we have Little Women, which grossed at the weekend uh, over two million pounds for a total gross of over nine million pounds. Um, and we're going to be reviewing this on this week's show, so we won't say any more about this movie neither will we say much about the next film in at number three it is The Gentleman it's Guy Ritchie's latest film uh, it's total gross at the moment is just over three million pounds and again it is a very action packed show we will be reviewing most of actually the box office including number two Craig what is in at number two two is Jumanji the next level with a re- weekend gross of just over three million pounds uh, and a total gross of 28 million pounds or over 28 million pounds uh, it's been out for a while but we are reviewing it on this week's episode and I'm really looking forward to reviewing this one. Yes, and no surprise here. Number one, top of the charts, is Star Wars The Rise of the Skywalker. It's got a total gross of £51,331,946 as of last weekend. We should make that clear. Craig, tell us a little bit about this film and actually what we've got coming up on the show. Well, I'm not actually going to say much about this movie other than the fact that it is directed by J.J. Abrams, who directed the first in this uh, uh, this trilogy, um, and it is going to be on a special spoiler episode of uh, Is It Worth It podcast. Special spoiler episode. Yeah, so we're doing going to be delving into this film as a as a really spoilerific uh, review, along with taking a look at all of the other films within this trilogy and all the other trilogies as well. Um, we're going to be picking that apart with Kyle Belcher uh, and uh, Ranjit Namra, um, two people who do love the Star Wars stuff. Um, unlike yourself, maybe? Or you just haven't seen it? 
I get a lot of criticism for having not seen Star Wars and presenting a film review podcast. And the simple fact is, is before I started doing this podcast, I was not a fan of that kind of genre of film. Mm. And I don't deny that Star Wars is one of the best franchises of all time. Um, you know, critically, the, the films or many of the films are considered, you know, brilliant. Uh, and I do want to watch them and I want to watch them in the order that they were released. And I want to give them justice. I want to, yeah. I want to critique all of them individually. I haven't had the time to get around to doing Doing that, I wanted to do it over Christmas. A quick plug for what I did over Christmas: I watched every single Harry Potter in a course of about three days with my brother, one to eight. Yes. Um, so obviously, the seventh uh, book, I believe it's the seventh book, is split into two films. Yeah. We really enjoyed that, and I want to give Star Wars the same. You know, I want to give it the credit that it deserves. I want to sit down and watch them. But if you are a Star Wars fan, listen out for that special episode. Um, I think it will be fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so just a quick analysis of this week's uh, box office. And um, Looking at it, Disney has four movies in the top ten. And only Sony Pictures has two other movies that are in the box office this week. Um, and that's Little Women and Jumanji. Uh, and then we have Entertainment, Piece of Magic, Universal and Paramount, which only have one movie in the box office uh, top ten. Which just shows that Disney are being very a, a massive dominant force at the minute with, with Star Wars, Jojo Rabbit, Frozen 2 and Spies in Disguise. And that really proves that the Fox deal that they have in place uh, is very lucrative for the House of Mouse. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's true, though. It's, it's true. They are really... Um, you know, raking there in the money. There must be so much cash in that house of mouse. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if eventually that actually they are forced to somehow split up the house of mouse mm. into different companies because it is now becoming a dominant force. It's a juggernaut, in, isn't it? It yeah. really is a power, a powerful. Well, from stream from, from a streaming service to, yeah. to yeah. cinema Disney to Plus, every, that... you know everything. They own Hulu now as well, mm. um, as well as having Disney Plus. It's it's really becoming um, more than what it ever intended to be. Mm. And whether it's a good thing or not is remains to be seen. I, I, I do believe having too many things under one roof kind of spoils things sometimes. Especially, too many cooks spoil the broth? Yeah, you know, Marvel under their roof as well. If they've got too many people who are at the very top who will start to dictate things, it mm. might start to filter down into the movies that we see. And I don't tend to like it when it comes goes like that but yeah that remains to be seen anyway david kick us off with number 10 do your usual box office round off number 10 playing with fire nine cats eight spies in disguise seven frozen two six andre ray 70 years young i hope i pronounced that right five jojo rabbit four little women three the gentleman two jumanji the next level and at the top of the pile it is star wars the rise of the skywalker or the rise of Skywalker, I should say. Shouldn't add a the in there. <laughs> Shouldn't edit something so so wonderful. <laughs> My apologies again. It's now time for our first review on week 41 and it's 1917 and it's set during World War One. and there's two British soldiers, Lance Corporal Schofield and Lance Corporal Blake and they receive seemingly impossible orders and in a race against time they must cross over into enemy territory to deliver a message that could potentially save 1,600 of their fellow comrades including Blake's own brother. Let's take a little listen to a clip before we delve into the main review. 
Colonel Mackenzie is in command of the second. He sent word yesterday morning he was going after the retreating Germans. He is convinced he has them on the run. That if he can break their lines now, he will turn the tide. He's wrong. Colonel Mackenzie has not seen these aerials of the enemy's new line. Come around here, gentlemen. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defences, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Lacoste. Deliver this to Colonel Mackenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. We will lose two battalions. Sixteen hundred men, your brother among them. You think you can get there in time? Yes, sir. I think that's a great clip because it really summarises the entire mission of what's at stake there and and what they're actually going to do without any spoilers as well, really. Um, so we'll kick off with who's the director. Uh, director is Sam Mendes. Uh, previous films that he's done is Skyfall, Spectre, Revolutionary Road, Road to Perdition and American Beauty. Uh, you've stated to me already that you loved Road to Perdition. Oh, yeah. Road to Perdition was a sensational film. Revolutionary Road, really very similar to Marriage Story. Fantastic performances by Kate Winslet and DiCaprio. And American Beauty as well. Brilliant mm. film. Sam Mendes is a fantastic director. One of my favourite directors, actually, and I was so excited for this. Yeah, I mean, this is the first film that he's got a writing credit on mm. um, and he's working again with Roger Deakins here as well uh, who actually won the Oscar for Blade Runner 2049 for now, cinematography exactly yeah. so now when we combine those things together we have got a very unique film now Roger Deakins is really well known for being a fantastic cinematographer and he's really outdone himself on mm. this movie now David do you want to explain just a little bit about what they did here with the way that they shot this film. So what they tried to do, it was the illusion of it all being taken in one shot, one mm. continuous motion. Other films have dabbled with the fake single take, uh, most recently and notably Russian Ark 2002, Victoria in 2015, and also uh, Birdman, but none have attempted it on such a grand scale as this. No. And, and when you see it, it really is just mesmerising it really is um, Hitchcock was one of the first people to really try and do this in Rope in 1948 um, and, and, and as he just said it, they've really taken it to the next level with this um, there's constant action there's there's no same locations used it is a continuous uh, moving project continuously moving throughout different uh, locations but for us the viewer we are being walked through a single day almost or a day and a bit in the life of these two who are on a mission or these two corporals who are on a mission to, to deliver a message. And it's, there's just, it's so action packed and it's just so mind blowing in mm. the way that it's done that you feel like you are there in the action. Now, one of the ways that they managed to pull this off was just rigorous uh, pre-production stuff mm. in terms of like building model sets to choreograph the entire film, including the lighting as well. Yes. Um, you know, it was, it was a much longer process as well than any other film because of the way that they're going to be shooting it. If they hadn't have done all of this rehearsals, which was about four months as well, um, that I don't think they would have pulled this off as well. I think it could have been a bit of a disaster, really. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. It's a staggering uh, technical achievement, and I think it was one that confirms Roger Deakins as a modern great of cinematography. I mean, technically stunning and visually beautiful. And one of my favourite scenes is where you've got um, one of our protagonists running through this derelict and destroyed French village, and it's lit by flares. Yeah. And the way the shadows... Uh, car, are cast across the set the incredible score by Thomas Newman is is just fantastic and it's so beautiful you think how on earth did they achieve that and the way they achieved that was actually by building a replica model of that set yep. and using small lights and shining it on the model to see where the shadows would be cast so everything from the shadows in this film is planned in pre-production like you said months and months of rehearsals and pre-production and it does pay off um it's 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 visually it's got to be one of the best films I've I've seen since doing this podcast. There's yeah. something very very special about it. Absolutely. Um, another thing to mention in terms of being in terms of cinematography is is the way that they did the lighting. So a majority of the film is done with natural lighting. Mm. Um, they had to wait for the clouds to go over so that they could get um no shadows in terms of harsh lighting. So it was nice and soft lighting. Um, but that meant having to wait for the clouds to come over, which yeah. extended the time that it took to shoot. But you, they needed that so they could have the consistent lighting throughout the whole project. It mm. would have looked strange if that, the, you know, yeah. the cuts would have been very much so noticeable with having that happening. Now, again, it, it, there are subtle cuts within this film. And the way that they did that as well is 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 very clever filmmaking, you know, for certain, you know, going behind certain objects yeah. to cover up the action to then... Uh, go across to to another scene or another shot, but it all looks like all one moving mm. shot, which is just brilliant. But there's other ways of doing it. They, you know, entering into bunkers and stuff. So going into a blackened room, that's a cut as well. It's not. It's it's noticeable for me and maybe for you as well because we are looking at so many films all the time. We mm. notice cuts now. We we look at editing as a as a part of you know reviewing these films, but. For everybody else who don't doesn't really don't really watch a lot of films or is there to just watch something unfold, it, it's it's so subtle that you wouldn't even notice. You would think it was all one take, and yeah, they pull it off superbly. Yeah, I mean, technically, we've discussed. I think it's it, there's no doubt that this is um, you know a fantastically well made film, and it's going to be involved for um, many awards come award season, specifically uh, cinematography and editing. Mm. You would think. Um, but what about the performances, Craig? What did you make of the performances in this film? Because I've got some fairly strong opinions on that. Okay, well, the two main leads, Dean Charles Chapman, who plays uh, one of the Lance Corporals, Lance Corporal Blake. Um, I thought that he was he was very, very good, um, but I feel like there could have been more from him. Um, totally agree. It, you know, he, his previous films that we've seen recently, uh, The King and Blinded by the Light, now they are more supporting roles, and I would say maybe he is a more of a supporting role within this film as well. Uh, so it's it's moving on to George McKay, really. So he is, he is the lead within this film. He is the glue within this film um, and I felt that his performance was sensational now we have a film that's coming out soon with him in it The True History of the Kelly Gang which I've seen um, numerous trailers for yeah. and it does look really really good and um, intense doesn't it it does look very intense it's a film that's produced by Picture House um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that there may be an unlimited screening of that I have a feeling mm. because it's Picture House Picture House and, and uh, Cineworld go hand in hand so I have a feeling there might be an unlimited screening for that mm. which would be good 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I think you're totally right. I think Dean Charles Chapman. I thought he was he was he was solid, but there was something not wooden, but his acting certainly against George uh, McKay's just wasn't quite as good. Um, but still, you know, a very good performance. But George George McKay's performance was brilliant. He really showed the fear, the grit, and the determination that these incredible men who fought for you know Queen and King and Country, Queen and Country, um, showed, and also the sense of uh, loss during the war you know there's we see there's amazing you know visuals of you know unfortunately dead horses dead humans rats and we just see the loss and the horror of war but also the hope of war as well the hope that they will be able to get to these 1600 troops stop this ambush that's been set up by the germans um, and obviously save blake's brother who's also um in the second battalion i do have a couple of criticisms for the film um i think we both researched and found out that Sam Mendes was involved in the writing of this film Uh, and I did feel that at times the script was not weak it's not a bad script don't get me wrong but I just felt the script wasn't quite up to the quality of the cinematography and some of the acting in the film. I have to disagree in some respects. That's good. I think the screenplay and and the script go hand in hand. Now the action that's unfolding on the screen is so raw and so real that the, the the words that come out of their mouths have to be almost improvised in a way and it will feel a little bit looser than most scripts because of that. Um, and it, it's, it's a very, very layered um, script, I think, because it's more about the looks that they are giving, the, the things that they are going through, the action that's unfolding and that helps tell the story and it's yeah. everything is constantly moving at, at a significant pace. There are things that slow it down a little bit and, and that really does bring you back to ground, really, mm. with those things. And I, I do think Sam Mendes has done a, an excellent job with, with developing this movie in, from everything from directing to, to the script as well and, and writing it. Um, we do have to say that there, are other, uh, p- there is another person who is, um, has a writing credit on the film as well and uh, that is Christy uh, Wilson-Karens. Um, so you know it's not just Sam Mendes here as well. Yeah. You know there is there is another writing credit there as well. Um, but um, the other performances, I just wanted to just touch upon those as mm-hmm. well. We do have uh, a large cast in this film, as I said in the introduction, with you know uh, Daniel Mays, Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch, Richard Richard Madden. You know these are all high profile yeah. stars. They don't have much to do in this film. They are. Moving the plot along, Colin Firth is the one that's giving them the message. Andrew Scott is another uh, higher up, uh, higher up um, general, I think, within the movie, who then you know gives them something else to do within the film, and they all move the movie along. But yeah. they all give exceptional performances, I think. Um, especially, I think Mark Strong does a really excellent job at you know giving an emotional performance, but without saying much it's yeah. it's actually really really good um from that point of view i feel like there is no overshadowing in that sense for the, for the for our leads there no a fantastic cast and like you said there is that sort of thinking of you know do the do the likes of colin firth and benedict cumberpacks just come in with a cameo and mm. is it really necessary to have such high profile names obviously it looks good on the poster but they do bring um gripping performances so i think for me you know like we said visually stunning uh, fantastic acting performances bit of a problem with the script for me and my only other criticism and it's not really a criticism it's almost like a strange warped unbelievable um 
criticism in the sense that it's such a technical masterpiece. I did find myself wondering how it was done and therefore becoming slightly detached from the story, if that makes sense. So to put it into perspective, the, the camera follows these these guys around. And like I said, it follows them from the behind and then it sweeps around yeah. and it follows them from the front. And you almost feel like um, you are there. You know, you don't feel like you're watching a movie. You feel like you're experiencing it. But then suddenly with some of the other cinematography that's used, you suddenly feel a little bit detached. And the best way I can describe it, there's one... Just choked on my own tongue again. There's one <laughs> there's one scene where the camera's behind them and they come up to a, a large, you know, trench. It's like yeah. a, a pothole that's been blown up by an explosive and it's full of water. And the camera's following behind them. And then as they go round this large body of water, the camera swoops down to to water level and runs across the water parallel to them. Now, visually, that is absolutely stunningly beautiful. But going from the camera camera being behind them to such an extreme um, and beautiful, might I add, piece of cinematography, it just took me out of the experience. And there's just a few times where the cinematography is almost so revolutionary that it, it doesn't quite work with that feeling of being in there and with them. So it's a bit of a bizarre criticism, but I hope it's one that makes sense. It, it makes sense. But for me, it, I didn't feel that. I, 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 I applauded the way it was shot, um, but it never took me out. And I always felt like I was part of the story myself. By sitting in my seat, I felt like I was a soldier following them and 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 experiencing everything that they were they were experiencing. Um, I do get what you mean, um, but for me, I was I was trying to watch it from the point of view of being somebody just watching the film and watching yeah. it unfold and and being engaged with the story. Now I will watch a bit closer for the technical aspects of the film when I watch it again because mm. I will. Be watching it again in IMAX, and I know you will be as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> sorry. There's a cue for me to come in. Yeah. Um. One thing we'll quickly say is we didn't get to see this in IMAX because it was completely booked up, and we wanted to get this review out fairly swiftly. Um. But if you can see it in IMAX, it was shot on on IMAX cameras, uh, and it you know it needs to be seen on the biggest screen possible with the best sound possible. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um. So the, uh, just going into a bit more technical aspect um for this film, the aspect ratio for it is one ninety to one, which is is the IMAX format, uh, which is obviously an expanded um, uh, shot um, or aspect ratio. So to see this film at its best, it is best that you see it in IMAX. So most films that you go and see that aren't um, are shot in IMAX, but you don't see in an IMAX screen, will have it compressed to an aspect ratio of 239 to 1, which is sort of letterbox. So you don't get the full visual aspect ratio of the film. So if you want to get that, see it in IMAX if you can. Um, uh, I do have a message from Toby about yeah. the film. Um, would you like me to read that out? Yes, please do, yeah. Okay, so Toby says, Sam Mendes managed to add new layers to the war epic not only through technical achievement but also the way a story is told on the big screen he sacrifices the classic spectacle to tell a small individual story the expertly stitched together long shots to create the illusion of a single take not only grab the viewer by the hand throughout this journey filled with danger but also makes us realize 
how much can happen to a person in a short period of time. It is a coming-of-age film where a small journey becomes a fight for survival and it feels almost like a play that takes place in real time. Now, I love what Toby's um, saying here and you can maybe then take that and compare it to some other films that we've seen um, previously. So Journey's End Mm. is a really good example of this. Now, Journey's End is a bigger story, I think, and and follows um, a vast amount of characters. Now, what Sam Mendes has done here, he's brought it a bit, bit more down to earth by giving us a much smaller story um, by following only two main characters that that see different people throughout the film um, and and in terms of a play as well Journey's End was a play mm. um, and it trans- actually translated very well to the big screen and they did an expertly brilliantly job with that however this film uh, isn't a play and was never a play and and therefore I think it works even better on the big screen especially um, it will be in, in the IMAX but there is another film that I think you wanted to touch upon possibly and that was Dunkirk mm. um, so what Christopher Nolan did there was was, was very different different um it was a much larger story with a lot more characters and he plays with time we know how christopher nolan loves his use of time um and so the 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 similarities there are the fact that time is all over the place with dunkirk but with Mm. this one it's all playing out in real time yeah which one do you feel does it better they're very very different films like dunkirk has a week a day and an hour and those three stories are all merged into one um Look, I think Noland is the master of time. And I think in terms of his use of time and his exploration of time, Dunkirk probably achieves more. But what I liked about this and what Toby touched upon was the fact that this was a small individual story. So a lot of war films, Craig, will know this from seeing them. Think of something like, you know, even Saving Private Ryan. Um, They want to go big and they want to show the amount of men and they want to, get as much in as possible and make them really big blockbusters look at Midway for example look how big and and terrible this was whereas what this does is this homes in on these two individuals and the amazing thing is is that there is there's no backstory either um you it's just the here and now you're literally there with them in the moment and i think having no backstory you feel like you are just thrown into that war and that adds to the int- intrigue and the intensity of the moment because that was the thing about these guys in the trenches they never yeah. knew when the next wave of attacks was coming their way they never knew when they were next going to be going over the top and what you feel like in this film is you're there with them and you don't know what's going to happen and it's all playing out in real time and like you said it's it's a, a, an amazing achievement really to have so much happen like Toby said in such a short period of time and for it all to unfold in what is fundamentally real time it's a it's a real um fantastic achievement yeah definitely uh, do you have anything else to add to this then um no no other than when this film finished Craig turned around to me we, we believe it or not we've not actually been watching that many films together recently we've been so busy but when we do watch films it's always at the end I'm thinking I wonder what Craig thought and he just turned around to me and said something on the lines of masterpiece or that was incredible yeah I Both. <laughs> I, I wasn't in the same boat as him originally I'm I'm much more critical of films and it takes a lot more to really blow me away and knock me over having had 24 hours to reflect on it look into it and reconsider i do think that technically this is one of the best films of recent years and it's going to play a major um 
part in award season. My only critique of it is, is although it is vin- visually sensational, um, perhaps it's not as immersive as Mendes might like. When he does immerse you, some of that cinematography that draws out, I just find detracts from the experience mm. a little bit. I have to disagree. I think it's a very, very immersive. Um, and I think Sam Mendes is, is probably very, very proud of how immersive he's he's made it. Um, I mean, there are going to be some certain people that will critique it in that sense and might might feel like it's taken you out of it, such as yourself. But I, I, I stand by that this is, this is a masterpiece. This is um, a very, very re- rewarding film to see because it will... Uh, just raise that awareness again because we do need to keep be kept reminded about the brutalities of war and mm. what our um you know relatives you know great great grandfathers and and then some um you know went through you know the young men that were sent to war or signed up to go to war because they didn't really know what they were signing up for and this really will, uh, portrays it in such a way that it it's 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 real. It it feels real, and it feels like you're there in the moment, living this one story that's playing out, and and you're you're the psychic on the mission as well. Um, and I think that's just it's just wonderful. It's just brilliant, and it's emotionally charged. It's it's just sensational. It really, really is. Um, I've never really quite seen anything quite like it, and and I think it's certainly worth going to see. And uh, we, you know, we don't need to ask any questions. I'm going to ask you the question. Go on then, ask me the Craig. question. 1917, is it worth it? Yes, it's it's so <laughs> worth seeing in the cinema. Um, please see it in the cinema. If you can see it in the IMAX, I think that will be breathtaking. I'm going to be seeing it on Thursday um, in the IMAX and, uh, and we will report back as to how different that might be in, in the next episode. But um, yeah, it's so worth seeing in the cinema. David? Yes, look, I know I may have come across as slightly more critical. I do want to make it very clear that I love this film. I thought it was a brilliant film. I'm being very nitpicky and just trying to pick out a few yeah. um, a few things that I I felt personally. It's great to have difference of opinion, but totally reiterate what Craig said. You must see this in the cinema, in IMAX. Um, it's, it's a visual masterpiece and one that is very, very much involved in awards season. Very much so. It did come out um, with some awards at Golden Globes, didn't it? It did indeed. It won Best Picture Drama, which really shakes up the Oscar race. It's nominated for a number of BAFTAs. Um, Oscar nominations are out on Monday the 13th of January, so um, keep an eye out for those. But yeah, um, it, this is going to be heavily in, involved come awards season, and rightly so. It's, it's a technical, um, astounding piece of um, technical cinema. Indeed it is. Uh, so that was our review of 1917. And we're now going to go straight into our review of Jojo Rabbit. So what's this film about? Well, Jojo is a lonely German boy who discovers that his single mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their attic. Now, aided only by his imaginary friend who happens to be Adolf Hitler, Jojo must confront his blind nationalism as World War II continues to rage on. Let's take a little listen to a clip. Rob Bessler, you're looking fetching as usual. It's because of you my son can't walk properly and has a messed up face. (laughs) He's still not angry, lad. Just took it. Yeah, yeah. So you are going to look after him while I'm at work? Hmm? Make sure he has a job and feels included. Got it? Got it. Yeah, really got it. Good. Guys, this is Johannes Bessler. The kid I told you about, remember, he stole a hand grenade and blew himself up, and as a result, I got demoted for negligence. Now I get to work in this office for all these wonderful kids. 
So, Jojo, I'm sure we can figure out something for you to do. Oh. Ideas? Yeah. Guys? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, we need somebody to walk the clones. Also, I think maybe he could hand out this new propaganda and ooh, deliver these conscriptions. I don't suppose I could be conscripted. Could I? So I think that's a great clip from the film that shows some of the humour that runs throughout this film. And where am I going to start with my review? Well, I'm going to start with my favourite place with its Rotten Tomato scores. It gets an 80% from the critics and a 95% score from the audience. And I'd just like to quickly say that 1917, for those of you who are wondering, had a 90% audience score and a 90% critical score. But on to Jojo Rabbit. Um, you look at that critical score, 80% um you know, rating, you'd think, yeah, the critics really like this, but it's not without its strong critics. Two out of five from the London Evening Standard, two out of five from the Financial Times, and one out of five from The Guardian, which proves that it's a real Marmite movie, but it is a movie that I absolutely loved. Um, it's a highly stylized satire, and one that can easily be criticised as, say, being smug and unsophisticated, but for me, it's not. I think nail meat head. Um, um, first thing I'll say is I really, really enjoyed this film. I mean, what do the Financial Times know about movies? Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Stick to the finances. <laughs> Stick to the economy. Sort that out before you start criticising this film. Well, should we delve into some of the facts then? So mm. we've got Taika Watiki as uh, the director of this film, now previously known for directing Boy, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, Hunt for the Wilder People, for Ragnarok. Uh, he's known for directing Chapter 8 of The Mandalorian for Love and Thunder in 2021 uh, and obviously um, for Ragnarok as well, if I did not say that before. Um, and I think he's a really up-and-coming, uh, very talented director. And I say up-and-coming, actually, he's already very established, let's mm. be honest. Um, but I think he's been really thrusted to the to the forefront um, since maybe for Ragnarok or Hunt for the Wilder People. Mm. Um, I think all exceptional films that we just listed there and The Mandalorian as well. If you haven't seen The Mandalorian, you probably haven't because Disney Plus isn't coming out until March. Um, but that is available on there. And I think uh, Chapter 8 is supposed to be really, really good as well. Um, so... Yeah, as you said, this is a really uh, a massive satire um, to do with World War Two, and and what do we mean by satire? Well, it's it's pointing fun at um, things that happened during World War Two, um, but done so in still in a very emotional way, actually, mm. and and it still hits home as to the raw elements of of war, but it it does still have some very light comic relief moments within mm. the film and necessarily done as well. And I think the only way you can do a film like this is to do a satire mm. because you have to, you have to look at the, the uh, comedic moments or things that are just completely ridiculous. Now, the Nazis did have a lot of very stupid uh, things that they, they did that like policies in terms of like, having to hail the Fuhrer every time you see someone, like hail Hitler. And they proved that in one specific scene that, that features Stephen Merchant, who is uh, a, a part of the Gestapo. And they enter Jojo's house, and there's about six or seven different Gestapo guys. And, and <laughs> yeah. as they're going through the door, they all hail Hitler to, to, to Jojo. And they, hail Hitler, hail Hitler, hail Hitler, hail Hitler. And they just go, yeah, it is goes great. on and on and on. And it is hilarious, because it happens about three or four times. And in one scene, there was about 36 hail Hitlers. Mm. Um, and, and it was funny, but 
but it also just sort of showed the ridiculous nature of of how the Nazis actually really, really did um, um, proceed with things in, in during World War Two. Um, another sort of point that I'd like to just sort of throw out there is to do with the cinematography, I think. And uh, Taika Waititi was was very keen to to show that this isn't the, your typical war film in the sense that it has a very uh, colourful palette. Mm. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, well, you saw you saw it, didn't you? Yeah, so yeah. you know what I'm talking about. The, the, it's very, the, the town that they're all in is very vivid in colour and very fashionable, um, which most war films are very muted in, in colour and, and very mm. dark and gritty. But this really showed the true nature of what it was like in some respects to be living in, in the place uh, in Germany at the time. And... I think it's 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 doing something very different here in terms of showing us what it was like to be in that era in Germany, um, and and I have to applaud Taika Waititi on doing on doing that move there. Yeah, and I mean in terms of performances, obviously it's got a stellar cast with the likes of you know Sam Rockwell, Rebel Wilson, Stephen Merchant, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Thomasin McKenzie. But I just want to firstly touch upon Roman Griffin Davis, who actually picked up a Golden Globe nomination for his performance as Jojo, and rightly so. I thought he was absolutely sensational. I mean, fundamentally, this is a coming-of-age story, but there is heart to be found amongst um, this clowning satire. Um, And it's also, uh, you know, a moving story. And um, Roman Griffiths Davis brings a comedic element, but he also brings a really emotional performance, a very innocent um, and powerful performance. I'd also like to give a shout out to Archie Yates, who plays uh, Yorkie. He is a real scene stealer. Whenever he is on the camera, he he just brings this fantastic comedy relief and you just instantly um, get to know and love his characters. And, you know, you've got the likes of Sam Rockwell and Scarlett Johansson, but actually I think it's Roman D- Griffiths and Davis that really steals the show in this. Uh, Taiki Watiti is also in it playing um, his uh, Jojo's imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler, and he brings a really sort of because it is Jojo's imaginary friend, we see him being very childish and it's a very childish Hitler and a very comedic and almost not likable but it is his imaginary friend and obviously because Jojo likes him he does have that doing uh, quotations, likeable element. And as Mm. Jojo becomes more and more enlightened with the absolute nonsense that Adolf Hitler spouted and the Nazis stood for, we see Hitler starting to turn and become more aggressive and more angry and more critical of Jojo. Um, And I just thought the performances were really, really on point, particularly from the young childhood actors. Uh, And I think from our research, we worked out that it was one of his first first performance this is his first movie that he's been in uh, and and a very good one to, to start off with i'd say um you know thomas and mckenzie as well uh, who plays elsa we see we've seen him previously in the king but also in leave no trace which we thought was a sensational film uh, when we saw that and um, we gave it a very very good review mm. um and she was a sort of up-and-coming um act- actress at that point as well and and she continues to to prove herself with with films such as Jojo Rabbit, and she does a, a very moving performance as as a young Jewish girl who is kept in the uh, in the walls of Jojo's house. And mm. following on from that, Scarlett Johansson uh, brings uh, a lot to the role as Rosie, who plays Jojo's mum. You know, she's actually probably one of the standout performances at, in in the entire film. Um, I do feel like she really brings. A, 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 well, a lot more than most of the actors do in this film. It, without 
Scarlett Johansson, I think this film wouldn't be quite as hard hitting. Yeah, she um, is I won't give anything else away because it would be spoilers, but it is just, it is sensational. Um, we've also got Alfie Allen in there, who is mm. uh, um, uh, Lily Allen's brother. Um, but oh. he's been doing, he's done a lot of films um, and stands alone, uh, stands on his own without having to say Lily Allen's brother. But, you know, we just thought we'd mention that. But he's done, uh, he was great in Game of Thrones mm. and uh, he was also in um he was also in the first John Wick film as well which he did actually have a really important role in that and and was absolutely brilliant as well uh Stephen Merchant brilliant com- comedy relief in there mm. as well um I thought he did a really good job so uh, all in all I think a really great piece of directing from Taika Waititi there who must have had a quite a tough time being on set dressed as Adolf but also <laughs> directing the cast at the same yeah. time must have been quite strange and I think what what this film does well is between the laugh out loud moments there is also a moving story about grief about losing friends about losing family and also um losing a race of people and Waititi himself is actually a Polynesian Jew um, and the comedy goes down this sort of sat- satirical slapstick it's very Monty Python uh, airplane naked gun and you do genuinely laugh out loud but for anyone where they think the comedy doesn't hit and some people won't find it that funny um and, you know, if you do think it misses the mark, it's redeemed by the heavier and deeper the film becomes. Um, it becomes um, easier to forgive the comedic flaws uh, and tonal unbalance as the film um, becomes more deep. Um, and there's some deeply moving moments. And like Craig said, there's one absolute gut puncher that we won't say. But I think the director here has managed... This could have been a catastrophe. Mm. And, you know, Nazi Germany, Hitler... You know, when when I said to some of my friends, oh, I'm going to see Jojo Rabbit, they're like, "What that's what's that about?" I'm like, "It's about um, a, a kid who's fundamentally in the Hitler Youth and his imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler." They were like, "That sounds terrible," and it could have been terrible, and terrible it is not. I think the director has done a fantastic job here. Yeah, definitely uh, agree with you on that. Um, just going back to the, the fact that um, Watiki is is in fact Jewish. Now he was asked why he wanted to play the role of Adolf Hitler, and his simple answer was uh, that what what a better way to say "f you" to the guy. And he's not wrong, really. Yeah. Um, and and there is a very hilarious scene uh, near to the end mm. that uh, Jojo and Adolf have, um, which I just found hilarious mm. when that happened. Uh, we won't say too much about what it was, but it was it was very funny and uh, follows up very soon to, to what uh, Watiki has just said there. Um, we do have a, a little message from Toby as well about the film. Um, I will read this out now because I think it's... Um, if We could follow on from this quite well, I think. But he says, As most of Watiki's films, Jojo Rabbit is about how the world of adults impact children's lives and behaviour. Unlike other films in this overexploited genre, Jojo Rabbit takes us on a journey during a period of extreme fa- uh, fan- fanaticism and racism seen through the lenses of a child instead of a mature person. A child who supports the wrong party. On one side of the story, we have a Nazi character, Nazi characters who are dominantly male and represent the juvenile boyish obsession to be part of a club. Even the adult characters are being depicted as big children with very immature behaviour. On the other side of the story, we have Jojo's mother and Elsa, the characters who live in the real world, uh, one of the consequences. Uh, They represent female maturity overwhelmed by infertile, infertile male warfare. Therefore, the storytelling techniques tend to often switch from very over-the-top satirical humour to very impactful, heartbreaking, emotional 
realism. Probably the most controversial factor of the film is Watiki uh, playing Jojo's imaginary version of Hitler, a character which is rather more of a personification of Jojo's ideals and principles developed during his blind conversion into a fanatic. Now, the, and he also goes on to talk about the color palette, uh, which we've already talked about, and the production design and costume design stand out amongst most of the films seen in recent years. Now, Toby, I think that's fantastic what you've written yeah. there. It really is because it hits the nail on the head of, of everything we've just been talking about uh, and, and presented to us in a, a really um, a great way. Um, definitely the, the the impact of um, adults on children's lives, especially during this era, is is highly significant. And and I think Watiki's really done a fantastic job of displaying what it might have been like or what it was like uh, for young children to be presented with facts from a leader that are obviously not facts and yeah. and drawing people in into this war and 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 what it could be like for life afterwards um and it's really quite hard hitting really in that respect because they are following a leader blindly into war yeah. essentially they're just being cons- sold a complete lie um, and you see Stephen Merchant in, in his Gestapo come in and, you know, rummage through people's personal belongings and all the Heil Hitlers. And visually, like you said, the production design is brilliant. You see this almost idealistic Germany that that, that, that could be. Mm. But it's basically just a turd covered in glitter. Well, like, yeah. There's nothing good about what is being pumped out. And what I love about this film is it's fundamentally a coming-of-age film. And we see the transformation and coming of of age of an innocent child you know he claims to love killing um and you know and he wants to go to war but he can't even tie his own shoelaces do you know what i mean craig there's just that vulnerability and it's beautifully exposed and as he has this um relationship with as jojo has this relationship with elsa and he starts to write this book about what are jewish people like and he comes up with all these strange theories that they hang upside down like bats and they have horns Mm. and it's over the top and ridiculous, and it's the kind of nonsense that the um, that the, the, the Nazis would pump out. Anything that was bad said against the Jews was a was a tick in the box from Adolf and his Nazi thugs. But as Jojo has that fantastic relationship with Elsa, we see his heart softened and his mind opened because he is cl- he is a closed book. He's had all this rubbish pumped into him, and we see that being played out with his imaginary friend Adolf Hitler Mm. but as he meets a real Jewish girl Elsa and that relationship blossoms the film just opens up and I was expecting this to be a really funny film which I think it was but I wasn't expecting to be such a hard hitting and impactful film I thought it was sensational yeah I mean um, we're we've got a message here from Shivani as well that that basically saying that she doesn't agree with the imaginary friend being necessary. All those scenes didn't break enough tension to be a comic relief, nor did they contribute to the motion of the story. Everything we learn about Jojo's development as a character and his struggling moral compass is perfectly articulated with his relationship with Elsa and, by extension, his mother. The imaginary friend was just an unnecessary explosion uh, that the film could have done without. Now, I agree and disagree with that mm. i feel like maybe um there could have been a slightly less of adolf maybe in in the film but actually it was a necessary thing it, it needed to be there to just allow you to get inside uh, jojo's head a little bit more about the, f- the the fanaticism of the way that he's been um you know told to believe the things that are, are going on by by adolf and and, and his third reich basically and and it, it certainly was a good way of allowing the character to speak 
his mind without having to literally talk aloud. He's having a conversation with his imaginary friend. And I, and that, again, that's the maturity of, of that character. He is a juvenile young man who, who needs to explore his thoughts in, 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 a, in, a, in a unique way. And, and what better way to do it in a film like this? I think mm. it, was, it was perfect. But yeah, maybe, maybe slightly over the top. One thing that I would like to touch upon is the age rating for this film. It is a 12A. How do you feel about that? I'm surprised. Um, I would have had it more as a as a 15. But I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to... Edu- what this will do is this will educate children how ridiculous the Nazis are. That's what it will do. So for younger audiences, is it suitable for someone who's 11 years old with adult supervision? Perhaps. I don't know. I, it, it's a decision that has to be made by the individual parent. I would prefer... You know what I'm like. I'm quite conservative. I would much rather see this as a 15 rating. Mm. But the reason it's a 12A is I think they're trying to educate... You, you know... When we were at school, Nazi Germany was on the curriculum. I'm sure it's still on the curriculum, and rightly so, because people need to learn about how horrific it was and the six million Jews that lost their lives and and countless others as well that were were wiped out by Hitler. And what this film does is it tries to educate you in in a more accessible way. So in many ways, yes, you know, I think fair enough if it's a 12A, but do err on the side of caution if you're going to take a 10 or 11 year old to see this um, because there are some themes and some scenes that are certainly uh, unsettling. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, I just wanted to touch upon one last thing before we round up this review and that's Archie Yates who plays mm. Yorkie. I thought he was sensational and I would yeah. love to have seen more of him in the film because I felt like he was such a a, a wise old man in a, in a young man's body. He was body. you. And he... <laughs> <laughs> a wise old man in a young man's body. Uh, probably not me, but he was definitely... He reminded uh, me a lot of you. Did he really? Yeah. Uh, okay, well, either way, he was sensational, and I feel like he will be uh, a very um, interesting actor to follow yeah. in a career of, of, of filmmaking, though, definitely. Mm. And I said earlier, I, I gave, I paid homage to Archie Yates earlier, and I said he was a scene stealer, and I think that's maybe why he wasn't in it as much, because he was such a dominant character and acted so well when he came on the screen but all three um of those of those younger actors roman griffin davis um archie yates and thomas and mckenzie who's actually 20 but that is still relatively young they all give and she's playing someone much younger fantastic performances but yeah archie yates big shout out to you my friend brilliant performance <laughs> um so do you have anything else you'd like to add to this to, to this review no i think we can ask each other the questions that's what we're here for to let the listener know if it's worth it or not so craig Jojo Rabbit, is it worth it? Yes, this is definitely worth seeing in the cinema. Um, It's certainly one that will educate and it will make you laugh, but it will also make you cry as well at certain points. And uh, a film that can do that is a good one to see in the cinema. Um, I do think, yes, err on the side of caution for the younger children um, if they are younger than 12. But I think, nonetheless, if you think your child can handle this sort of movie, I think it'll be one that will certainly stick with them for a long time in a good way, um, not in a bad way. Yep. What about you, David? Is it worth it? Yes, 100% worth it. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll love it. Go and see it. Excellent. So that was our review of Jojo Rabbit.
It's now time for our third review on Week 41 and it's Little Women. Now, what's this film about? Well, in the years after the Civil War, Jo March lives in New York and makes her living as a writer, while her sister Amy studies painting in Paris. Amy has a chance encounter with Theodore, a childhood crush who proposed to Jo but was ultimately rejected. Their oldest sibling, Meg, is married to a schoolteacher, while shy sister Beth develops a devastating illness that brings the family back together. Let's take a listen to a clip. <gasps> Tell the servants I want this painting purchased for me immediately. Hey, 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 you and My hand, look. Joe. What richness. It hurts so much. Oh, Theodore Lawrence, you ought to be the happiest boy in the world. Oh, little fellow can't live on books alone. I could. What did you do? Nothing. I did nothing. I did a drawing and then Mr. Davis hit me. Christopher Columbus, look at that. It's my grandfather. Are you scared of him? No, I'm not scared of anyone. He looks stern, but my grandfather was much more handsome. Joe, we do not compare grandfathers. You think he's more handsome, eh? Oh, uh, no, actually, you are very handsome. I, didn't I mean... knew your mother's father. You've got his spirit. Oh, well, thank you, sir. <laughs> You are not to attend that school anymore. Good, that man has always been an idiot. Joe will teach you. Me, I already teach Beth. You're a good teacher. Yes, women being taught at home is much more proper, I believe. Only because the schools for women are so poor. Indeed, quite right. I wish all the girls would leave his horrible school and that he would die. Amy, you did wrong and there will be consequences. I didn't, I didn't even do anything. I just did a drawing. Well, thank you so much for taking care of our Yes, of course. I don't wish death My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Mm, well, so do I. Well, then you'll run over and we'll take care of you. Please, and come over whenever you'd like. Invite your sister Beth as well. Yes, Beth would adore the piano. Is she the quiet one? Yes, that's our Beth. Tell the little girl to use our piano. And Joe, borrow whatever book you'd like. Can I come look at the paintings? Yes. There's also a lovely greenhouse. We must go, girls. Um, Mr. Lawrence, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this one. If that's okay. Thank you. Thank you again. Oh, Miss Meg, you forgot your glove. Well, back to work. I, I really personally love that clip, David, <laughs> during listening to that <laughs> too clip. Too long! Just kept saying it was too long, but I think it perfectly summarises uh, the wonderful direction that Greta Gerwig has, has given us here in, in showing the chaotic nature of the family and how sort of in sync Saoirse Ronan Emma Watson Florence Pugh are all working together here along with Laura Dern in that scene and Timothy Chalamet um, I, it, it's it's chaotic in nature but it's also very loving and, and very funny but also very passionate they're a very passionate family um, and, I, and I think Greta Gerwig's done a, a sensational job at collaborating with these artists in that sense um, Greta Gerwig is responsible for a directing and writing the script for this film as well. Um, she actually wrote a draft script for this movie before releasing Lady Bird and directing Lady Bird. Um, Lady Bird being her directorial debut. Um, Little Women being her first directorial debut working with Sony or a big... Um, uh, what do you call it? A uh, distributor? Yes, no? you do. Maybe Craig. you call it something like that. Uh, a studio. There we go. A big studio. Um, and I 
feel like she's pulled this off amazingly well. Amazingly well. Yeah, well, the Rotten Tomato scores would agree with you, Craig. It gets a solid, well, not a solid, a sensational 95% from the critics and a 92% score from the audience. And for Hollywood, Little Women really is the gift that keeps on giving. No fewer than eight big screen versions of Louisa May Alcott's beloved tale of Civil War girlhood have been released since 1917. Uh, I've not seen any of them, but I know people who have seen multiple other versions were saying, oh, is this really needed? You know, it's the same story told over again. But what Greta Gerwig does is she takes a new and risky approach in her adaptation, most notably splitting the sisters' girlhood and young adulthood into two interwoven timelines. Um, And that can... One of my criticisms of the film is that can make it difficult for someone who hasn't seen the story or know the story to follow. Because obviously they decided to have Emma Watson, Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh uh, all play the the younger versions and the older versions of themselves. With it yeah. flicking I, back... I will just want to say, that, uh, along with Eliza Scanlon as well as Beth March as well. Yes, so along four with the, sisters. Yeah, along with Eliza Scanlon. I apologise, Eliza, uh, for missing you out there. Um, so when they do flick back and forth, I did a couple of times find it difficult to realise were we in the modern day or were we in the previous day. Um, but I would say it's got a great period feel of 1860s America, great visuals. Um, and what it does have, Craig, is it has a, a very good script um, that keeps the audience engaged. Um, and that is really important and like I said for the newcomer the flashbacks were difficult but once you got into the film it became easier to follow yeah definitely and I think it was definitely helped with uh, the performance from Florence Pugh who is sensationally able to portray a younger version of her character and then uh, portray a much older, more intelligent, more coming-of-age uh, uh, version of Elf Amy March. And it's a very different version of Amy March that I've read up about. So Amy in the books is is portrayed more as an antagonist, and she is still an antagonist within this movie in some respects. But you get to see a bit more background uh, to her character. It's explored in, in a lot more detail, and I think Florence Pugh actually steals the show from mm. Saoirse Ronan in some respects um, I feel like she's done a, a sensational job and she's done amazing, amazingly well in 2019 um, with um, Fighting With My Family at the beginning of the year followed by Midsummer, um, and now Little Women as well and she's done really really well yeah uh, I've got exactly the same Craig I think you know you've got Laura Dern Saoirse Ronan Meryl Streep you've got these big strong well known Hollywood actresses and Florence Pugh comes in with a brilliant performance performance and it's made even better by the fact that she literally went straight from the set of Midsummer onto Little Women so she'd gone from that character to this character and what she brings more so did we mention Emma Watson oh yes we did sorry I just went off on a Harry Potter tangent um, <laughs> Emma Watson was in there um what she does more so than the likes of Emma Watson uh Eliza Scanlon and perhaps even Saoirse Ronan is her young um younger version of herself is amazing. You know, she brilliantly transforms from this sort of um, bratty teenager um, and very, you know, unstable and emotionally charged to this really sophisticated and mature young woman at the age of 20. And when you're watching this film, it's very easy to know when Florence Pugh's character is younger and when she is older. It's not so easy with some of the other ones. I mean, they obviously do a little bit of work with hair and makeup, but her physicality, what she does with her voice, mm. when she cries, it's a real show-stopping performance from from uh, Florence Pugh. And she has had some critical acknowledgement for it. I believe she got nominated for a critic 
Critics' Choice Award off the top of my head, but I definitely know she was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actress, you know, and she's alongside some big names, Laura Dern for Marriage Story, Margot Robbie for Bombshell, and Margot Robbie for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Margot Robbie from anything else? Yeah, Margot Robbie, two nominations in the same category, unbelievable. But she has got a BAFTA nomination. I think she'll be very... Um, difficult for her to win it because I think Laura Dern will win it for Marriage Story but you know it's great to see her nominated and 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 her performance acknowledged yeah definitely uh, I would actually like her to see I would like to see her win the BAFTA for the supporting actress role without a doubt because I think it's a, a wonderful performance and uh, one one of the outs um, one of the performances of the year I'd say from from Florence Pugh from in this film and in Midsummer as well and I would have liked to have seen her up for an award for, for Midsummer as well actually yeah I mean what this film does well is it has lots of themes so what I like about these these women who are in 1860s America where basically we're told that pretty much their job is to find a husband preferably a rich one mm. so that they can have this security but they all have this raging ambition we've got one that wants to be uh, an actress one that wants to be an artist one that wants to be a writer uh, and one that wants to be a pianist and you've got those four young women all with these really strong and you know hard for ambitions that they've got there's themes of unrequited love it's a coming of age story there's sibling rivalry in there they also touch upon grief um so there's lots of themes in there and it's got brilliant acting did i enjoy it though oh i don't know did you not as much as you Um, I I was somewhat underwhelmed by it all Um, and and this is one of those bizarre things where from a critical perspective I can tell you it's well shot it's well acted it's got a great script it's got a very nice score over the top of it visually it's very nice indeed but for me it just it lacked something I haven't been able to in, in my notes in my reflection on the film work out what that was Um, And maybe it's the fact that this is a beloved story, a well-known story and a story that I didn't know. For people who have come in and who have seen one of the many other adaptations of it, like we said, there's been eight big screen adaptations. Maybe it would have been easier for them to relate. But for me, there was there was just something missing. And I don't think think it I swallowed my tongue again I've got to stop doing that I don't think it's quite as good as that 95% critic score and 92% audience score I just think it's a very it's not a run-of-the-mill goblin but it's a <laughs> it's <laughs> do you know what I mean a run of the yeah, mill. yeah it's it's not one of those but it's it's not quite as good as as and it's I mean it might get a best picture nomination but I don't think it's going to be a contender to win I disagree with you. I, I we are, all we are doing this week is, is I'm swallowing my tongue and you're disagreeing. Well, yeah, well, I have to this week because this is um, a film that is is very interesting to watch. It's it's it has some great period features in there. It's uh, a film I think that's actually very poignant at the moment, and it's continuing on with uh, you know telling stories that. Yes, it's been told before, but it's being told again in a unique way and uh, a story that really does um, encourage women who perhaps have been uh, suppressed in some way um, for for doing the things that they want to do, for having Mm. amazing talents and, and going out and getting the things that they want in life and I just enjoyed the film so much. It was just wonderful to watch and wonderful to see, um, you know, the actresses portray characters that are younger and then come of age. And and it's it's a great coming of age film. And I think um, Greta Gerwig is 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 going to be known for doing quite a few 
coming of age films, I think. And I think she's she's got the chemistry right. She's got, uh, you know, work, working with Saoirse Ronan again. She's just done an amazing job. And I hope that they continue to work together and, and make really great movies in the future as well. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Should we ask each other the question? Yeah, go on then. Craig, Little Women, is it worth it? Uh, yes, this is definitely worth watching in the cinema. I think it's a great family film to see in the cinema. Um, and I think there's, uh, you know, it's continuing to sell out in the cinema. It's doing extremely well and I hope it continues to do well. And I hope uh, that they reap all the awards that they are nominated for as they as they come out. David, Little Women, is it worth it for you? Yes, it is definitely worth seeing in the cinema for Florence Pugh's performance uh, alone. I think she's sensational in it. Um, It's got a great script. It's very well acted. Visually, it's very, very impressive. A nice coming of age story. But it just lacks something. And, you know, I should be able to put my finger on what that is. I probably need to watch it again. I wasn't blown away by it. Like I was blown away by, say, Joker or um, 1917 or Jojo Rabbit, which really hit me emotionally. This didn't have the same impact on me, but nonetheless, still a very good piece of filmmaking and one that I would say is worth seeing in the cinema, even if I didn't like it as much as Craig. We also have an email from one of our patron supporters at Lauraline, and uh, she says, having never read the book and so don't know how close the book is to the film uh, and how much has been added, I get the feeling that Joe March's writing of the book Little Women is very much an add-on. My positive review of the film is Gossip Girl for 1869. <laughs> the film is very much Saoirse Ronan's film and much of the rest of the cast really revolve around their relationship to their sister and are only allowed brief moments away from the spotlight on Joe March. I don't I don't know if this happens in the book itself or whether their plots have been hacked away to make it into the film. The first quarter of the film really jumps around and it's only the hairstyles of Joe March that allows you to figure out what period of Joe March's life you're in. Mm. Probably the only standout actor for me was Charlemagne who personifies Louchness. Plus, how many times does Emma Watson, who plays Meg March, bemoan being <laughs> poor while they have a housemaid working in the kitchen? Um, great email there, Laura Line. Um, that's really, really great stuff. And we love receiving emails. Yes, from, thank from you, you so much. Um, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do so by, e- by via email. Uh, the email address is mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. That's mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. There are other ways to communicate with us. David, can you remember what they are? Yes, you can get in touch with us via Twitter. You can contact us on Instagram, Facebook. You could send us a pigeon. Um, there's Or an owl. An owl, yes, Harry Potter. There's a lot of Harry Potter references today. An owl would be wonderful. But no, listen, we've had a number of emails and comments that we've read out on today's show you the listener are as much as part of this show as us and we want to hear your opinions uh, we love hearing from you so thanks very much for everyone who has interacted with the show so far this week indeed so that was our review of Little Women stay tuned for the rest of the show after this ad interrupt this broadcast or visit worth it the film review podcast for an important announcement if you're enjoying the podcast we would like to remind you that you can now become a patreon supporter for as little as three dollars a month this helps the podcast to continue to grow as well as offering the potential for bonus content and is it worth it merchandise your support helps the podcast stay alive so why not become a patreon supporter today head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash is it worth it podcast
It's now time for our fourth review on week 41 of Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. And we will be reviewing The Gentleman, directed by Guy Ritchie. What is this film about? Well, The Gentleman follows American expat Mickey Pearson, played by Matthew McConaughey, who built a highly profitable marijuana empire in London. When word gets out that he's looking to cash out of the business forever, it triggers plots, schemes, bribery and blackmail in an attempt to steal his domain out from under him. Before we dive into our full review, let's have a little listen to a clip. Weed, bush, skunkamola, white widow super cheese. <laughs> it's the new gold rush. This is the thin end of a very fat wedge, sir. If it's such a fat wedge, why don't you keep it? See, I've developed a reputation as a man who came up the hard way. You could say that there's blood on these pretty white hands. But in the new business, once legal and under the jurisdiction of the respectable umbrella of ministerial legitimacy, an enterprise like this will need a face with a clean past, which sadly, I do not possess. Retirement doesn't sound so bad. Long walks in the countryside, pruning roses with my better half, raising some cubs. I've earned it. So following on from that clip, then uh, we're going to talk about Guy Ritchie for a moment. Now, Guy Ritchie, uh, his previous film uh, was Aladdin, um, and that was uh, to some good critical appraise, that one. Um, But previous to that, it was King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, and that wasn't so good. And we Mm. were on a bit of a a tricky path with with Guy Ritchie at that point. Um, But he's most notably known for films like Rock and Roller and Snatch. And this is sort of a heart back to that kind of movie. Um, in being a real gritty London kind of, you know, South London gangster movie, uh, same as Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels as well. And and this is really like a, almost like a, a trilogy, or not really a trilogy, is it? It's put with more as like a quadruply, whatever, <laughs> that's even a word, um, of, of kind of films. And you know what? I like these kind of films that Guy Ritchie does. I think he does them very, very well. Um, He's directed this movie. He's also written this movie, the script and the story. Um, And uh, yeah, I went in not really expecting too much, to be honest with you, and came out of this movie pleasantly surprised yeah i mean it gets a very solid 71 percent score from the critics it's it's quite new out there's no um, new audience score and like craig was saying he's really paying homage almost to his previous work in the likes of snatch um the story unfolds in true guy Ritchie style and i think the first thing to say about the film is the great performances you know matthew mcconaughey charlie hunnam i thought it was bra- brilliant uh, colin farrell gives a, a, a fantastic and very comedic cameo um, and Michelle Dockery as well. She's brilliant. It's obviously very strange seeing her in this. The last thing we saw her in was the Downton Abbey film. Um, but do you know what, Craig? It's Hugh Grant that steals the show. Um, the plot unfolds through the eyes, you know, and storytelling of Hugh Grant's character. And he is, we're so used to seeing Hugh Grant playing that sort of 
very quintessentially British, you know, almost buffoon, but very charming, um, witty and dry um, Brit. Whereas this, he's this sort of Cockney gangster. Let, let me tell you a story. You know, he, he's he's very, very funny. And he brings a really unique, and I would say, I mean, there hasn't been any awards coming his way, and I don't think there will be any. But there is no doubt that this is one of Hugh Grant's best performances in recent years, and a really refreshing uh, performance from Hugh Grant. Just just to sort of delve into Hugh Grant a little bit here, I think in recent years he's taken on more diverse roles. Now, going back to Cloud Atlas uh, many years ago where he was a a bad guy in that and he did a fantastic job with that character. And it was actually multiple different characters for different times. Um, And he he was really great in that. And then Paddington 2, he was sensational in there as a bad guy as well. Um, He's worked with um, Guy Ritchie before in The Man from Uncle. Um, which actually we can see uh, a little plug for that film at the end of the film where he's sitting in a producer's room trying to sell the script to this film that he's he's been writing, uh, which is the actual story that's unfolding. Mm. Again, an unreliable narrator is sort of telling the story here and it's through Hugh Grant. Um, but there's also a poster for the Man of Uncle, Man from yeah. Uncle in, in that scene as well, which, which is a really nice little um, homage again to, to other Guy Ritchie films. But, you know, Paying homage to yourself is it slightly arrogant, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, I've I've read a lot of stuff and spoke to a lot of people about this film, and Guy Ritchie films are a bit of a guilty pleasure. There's something about them that the style is is very unique. He has all these madly tangled plots, so the plots are just ridiculous. More and more stuff happens, and it gets more and more ludicrous. But he somehow manages to pull it together. And the reason this film works well is that it's on one constant level of unbelievability so there is an element of this is a bit too far-fetched this is a bit too unbelievable but it stays on one even keel so it never gets too ludicrous it never gets too ridiculous whereas some films do do that he stays on that one even keel and even though it's slightly unbelievable you therefore believe it but that works. It works because we have an unreliable narrator telling yes. the story. Now, if we didn't have that unreliable narrator um, regaling the story uh, and trying to convince another character of what went on yeah. uh, throughout the course of uh, the story, um, you wouldn't be able to believe it or, or it wouldn't suspend your belief so much. Um, and it's done to great comedic, comedic effect and it's done in a way that is is really um, entertaining and, and uh, just a great entertaining watch really you know i obviously we see all of the films even the bad ones so you don't have to and (laughs) often i sit in the cinema and sometimes it can be hard work sitting through some films you know when you see a lot of films it can be it's i love doing this podcast and it's really enjoyable but sometimes seeing certain films is hard work and we're going to get onto one of those later in the show (laughs) um but this i just really enjoyed it and what i was able to do is i was able to take my critical hat off forget the critical hat sit down nice big um cup of um pepsi max cherry a big bag of popcorn and just enjoy a film and i laughed and i was entertained it's fast paced it's fun it's funny and it does captivate you and the the characters do intrigue you you know matthew mcconaughey gives a brilliant matthew mcconaughey performance but you're really sucked into his character charlie hunnam um gives a, a, a great performance as well like i said colin farrell has this um bizarre cameo which or it's not a cameo as such no it's, it's definitely a supporting role yeah. um but i would have liked to 
have seen more of his character, to but, be honest with but you. But the funny thing is about his character is he keeps doing these favours and he does them so well that he keeps doing more of them. So he, he wants to get out of the film. It's like, here's Colin Farrell, but his character wants to get out, but he gets slowly more and more sucked in. One person I did want to mention was Henry Golding. Mm. Now, I've been quite critical of his performance is in... Um, Last Christmas. Last Christmas and Crazy Rich Asians. He, for me, he didn't, he didn't work and there was something a little bit off about his performances. Actually, in this, I thought he had much more fun. He seemed much more relaxed. Um, he, he played the bad guy quite well. Uh, and, I, and, and I've got to give him credit. I thought that Henry Golden gave a, a really good performance in this. But like I said, I think it's Hugh Grant that steals the show. I still think Henry Golden's performance isn't great. I just don't rate him as an actor, unfortunately. Mm. Um, Yes, I think you're right in the sense that it's better better than the previous previous films that we've seen him in. Um, You know, but they all the films that he's been in have been very, very successful um, in terms of maybe not critically, Mm. although Crazy Rich Asians was critically um, a sound film. Um, The Gentleman as well, critically sound, but um, last Christmas, a complete shambles. Yeah, um, a mess, really. Yeah, and only only saving grace was the performances from um, the lead actress and and um, uh, Emma Thompson as well. And mm. and you know, it's it's a shame that sometimes we have these films um, that happen like that. And Henry Golden, uh, he just needs he just needs a something that's in tune with the way that he acts mm. a bit more. Um, he just doesn't seem very diverse, unfortunately. Yeah, most actors, particularly big Hollywood actors, big names, I look at them and I think there's a there's a real there's a role out there for them, written for them, and I can see a big, hard hitting, powerful performance. I haven't seen that from Henry Golding yet. I, I can't see where that's gonna come from. Like I said, I'm not his biggest fan. I I'm not saying he was brilliant in this film, but I thought he was I thought he was he was better. And overall, this is just one of those films where, like I said, you take your critical hat off and you just enjoy it. You'll be yeah. taken on a roller coaster. One small criticism the overuse of the c word um there's a lot of c bombs wasn't there for me the way it's used a couple of times is really genuinely funny i'm not going to repeat um how it was used but it was funny and then it just got used a little bit too much and i don't mind swearing even graphic swearing if it's used correctly and i know that londoners and you know us cockney blokes and i'm standing here bouncing around with my elbows out um (laughs) um tend to use that word and it has I mean do you remember it used to be an awful word that nobody said and now it's thrown around like confetti so one criticism I think there's a bit too much use of the of the swearing there and like I said the plot is it's not muddled it's very erratic but he manages to pull it together very very well this is a film that has a potential to be a mess but because of the good direction and because of the good acting it's pulled together to make a very very enjoyable watch yeah uh, interesting enough, Kate Beckinsale was originally cast to uh, be uh, the character that Michelle Dockery uh, ends up playing. Oh, and she I only, can see that. Yeah, she actually dropped out two days after shooting began, um, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I thought Michelle Dockery played the—I mean—played the role brilliantly. Yeah. Um, so I wonder what the film would have been like if if Kate ended up playing. I haven't seen much of Kate Beckinsale. I wonder if having if she has seen this, if she regrets dropping out. I don't know why she dropped out, but I think her replacement did a fantastic job and really interacted very well with Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, definitely. Um, are we done then? 
I think we are. This is one of those, it's a popcorn film and it's a very good one. So Craig, the gentleman, is it worth it? Yes, it's definitely worth going to see. Um, it isn't one for the children, not Oh, not at, at all. all. This is um, an 18 and it should be a 21 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if there was such a rating. Um, it, but it is definitely worth seeing in the cinema. It unfolds brilliantly. It's, uh, it's got some great performances and it's just very, very funny. Yeah, yeah, it's fast-paced, it's fun, it's laugh-out-loud, and it's just a really enjoyable, mangled, wonderful piece of filmmaking, and one that you you will enjoy, and I, I really recommend taking your friends, getting some popcorn, getting a, a, a nice, uh, you know, soda, or whatever the Americans would call it, and enjoying it, it's, it's, it's a very good film. <laughs> It's now time for our fifth review on week 41, and it's Jumanji The Next Level. Now, in Jumanji The Next Level, the gang is back, but the game has changed. As they return to Jumanji to rescue one of their own, they discover that nothing is as they expect. The players will have to brave parts unknown and unexplored, from the arid deserts to the snowy mountains, in order to escape the world's most dangerous game. Let's take a listen to a clip. Welcome to Jumanji. This next adventure is even more challenging. The threats are greater. The animals are fiercer. And this time, every second counts. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. That's not what I thought this was. We should just go. Just go. Go team. There has to be a way to win. You almost killed us. Well, at least you didn't kill him. <laughs> that that wasn't a clip. <laughs> Welcome to Jumanji. No, it's, it's this. It's, Welcome to Jumanji. It was so loud. I'm sure someone's probably had a heart attack. If you're listening to this on your commute to work, I'm sorry about how loud that was. But indeed, welcome to Jumanji. It's Jumanji, the next level. The guys are back. What did we make of the film? Well, believe it or not, it gets a very good critical score. 70% from the critics, 87% from the audience. I just want to say firstly that I loved the first one. Uh, Jumanji, welcome to the jungle. I thought it was brilliant. It was refreshing. It was unique. And I thought it was a needed and great follow-up to the Robin Williams classic. And it absolutely smashed the box office, Craig. And therefore, a sequel was bound to happen. Does the film go to the next level, though? In some ways, yes. You know, we've got new characters and a bigger gaming landscape, which is effective. You know, we've got the desert, we've got the snowy mountains, and it does have a stellar cast. New characters in Danny DeVito, Danny Glover and Aquafina. Um, And overall... Um, it's a very, very solid film. Like I said, I thought the first one was was brilliant, and I'm not surprised they brought a second one out. Um, and I think you've got some statistics, actually, or, or some information about just how quickly they brought it out, because it only seems like yesterday that the original was out. Yeah, so this saw one of the fastest turnarounds from filming to theatrical release from a major studio. Uh, it didn't begin until uh, February 2019 in terms of filming, but it was wrapped up four months later in May for a December release 
release. That's only seven months later. So most films usually complete their filming uh, a year before their release. Um, so this was a huge turnaround. Um, and it's done so uh, with great box office results. As we said in the box office rundown, it's grossed so far over £28 million. Pounds, mm. And that's UK only, uh, I yeah. believe, um, which is pretty outstanding. It's still filling the cinemas up even since its release. Um, it did come out a while ago um, and we've only just managed to sort of get this review in now, but it's still showing in the cinema. So um, if you do want to go and see it, you can. Um, but yeah, this film, you know, it sort of does build upon the previous one um, in some respects, but does it do enough to to warrant more Jumanji? What do you think? I, I, I think yes, but I think the important thing to remember is the first one smashed the box office. The second one has done very well at the box office, which is incredible when actually both of them came out almost identical times to Star Wars. Um, so I think the first one came out at the same time as The Last Jedi. Um, and obviously this one's come out at the same time as Rise of... Uh, Rise. Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's done incredibly well at the box. It's also out in the just before award season around Christmas time. So it's done incredibly well at the box office. Does it warrant a sequel? Yes, because what it's actually done is it's set it up for a third one. I'm absolutely convinced that they've left this open for a third film. Well, that certainly would suggest it with the mid credit scene at the end of the film where we have something happen that really does um, mean that there is going to be a third one, really, isn't there? It's, it, there's just too much uh, left open at the end of the film for it not to happen, I think. Yeah, like I said, it, you know, it, it, it does go to the next level with the size and scope of the story. But it does feel a little bit like it follows in the footsteps of the previous one and they are treading on ground that's already been trodden on. Um, but like I said, what becomes clear is it is fundamentally the middle of a trilog trilogy and it has been nicely left open um, for a finale. The one thing I would say is the way they re-enter the game is pretty lazy writing. Mm. Um, I won't go into the details because it ultimately is a film that I'm going to recommend seeing. But it was like, it felt to me a bit like, well, you know, the first one's done brilliant at the box office. We've got to do a second one. How are we going to get them back into the game? Um, who's got an idea? You. Yep. Oh, that'll work. We'll go with that. And someone <laughs> scribbled it on a bit of paper yep. and, th and they've just gone for it. Um, so the way they enter the game is a little bit lazy. But once they're in the game, I think it works really, really well. And obviously we've got the two older characters in there, Danny DeVito um, and Danny Glover. And both of them end up going into the game. Uh, and the way that's done is just very, very clever. Uh, and it gives Dwayne The Rock Johnson and... Kevin Hart the opportunity to explore what it's like to be older characters uh, and it just it just really works very well and it's very very funny as well Kevin Hart portraying an older man is something that is well worth seeing alone in this film definitely I think Dwayne Johnson Jack Black Kevin Hart Karen Gillan Nick Jonas Aquafina as well they they all do really really well at portraying younger characters older characters um, mm. and it's it's a bit of fun for them, really. And that does show on screen. And because they have so much fun making the film, yeah. quite clearly, it translates to, to, the, to the audience having a great time watching the film. And I think a lot of people go into this film not expecting too much. They know mm. that it's just going to be a really fun film to watch. And there's no two ways about it. It is really entertaining and really fun. But as you said, is it treading new ground? I don't think it is. It's not pushing those boundaries like the first one did. Um, but maybe the next one will because how they've left it open. Well, obviously, we won't reveal how, but it could be quite unique in, in the way yeah. they turn things around. 
Yeah, I think so. Like I said, it's, and what I do like about it, Craig, is it the fact that it's a family film. It's a film that all the family can see. There's more yeah. than enough in there for adults. You know, I'm an adult, believe it or not. It may not sound like one, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Um, but there's also lots in there for children. And I know children will find this exciting and it's visually very, very entertaining. So you've got that visually entertaining action for the children. You've got lots and lots of comedy in there for the adults. So overall, I think we're ready to ask the questions. David... Jumanji, the next level, is it worth it? Yes, Jumanji, the next level, is worth it. Does it go to the next level? Yes. Does it tread on ground that's already been trodden on? Also, yes. But overall, it's done well at the box office. I think there's going to be a third one, and I welcome a third one, because the second in this potential trilogy was still a very, very enjoyable watch. Yes, I I agree with everything you've just said there, basically. You've summed that up really, really well. Um, It's definitely worth seeing in the cinema, without a doubt. Without a doubt. No worries at all. So that was our review for Jumanji, The Next Level. And uh, we're going to go straight into our next review, which is Cats. Tonight is a magical night where I choose the cat that deserves a new life. Going to the ball could get dangerous. Come on! Let's dance! I judge a cat by its soul. I've got plenty of soul. Spotlight! And a drum roll, please. Milk! It's party time! The most deserving cat will be reborn into another life. So they can be who they've always dreamed of being. What's your name? Cat got your tongue. Here we go! (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess with the crazy cat lady. Now it is time to make the choice. Right, well, that's not going to work, is it? (laughs) That's what I say to you. (laughs) Cross pause. Come, we're about to begin. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, yes. That's right, it is the trumpet. The trumpet is out because this is a catastrophic catastrophe of cataclysmic proportions and I have been looking forward to saying that for some, some weeks. Let's start with the Rotten Tomato scores and they are very stinky, Craig. Critics give it a 21% (laughs) score, which is much better than it was because at one point it was as low as 13%. But the more critics have seen this, the score has gone slightly up. The audience score, however, has gone down. It's currently lying at 53%. That was more like 60%. So the critics have been a bit more... um, Critical. Well, I mean, this got one star from The Guardian. 
It got, got zero stars from other places. Oh, actually, as well. no. It might. It got one star from one major British newspaper. It got zero stars from another, um, and I can tell you why. It's it's just very very bad. Some things just aren't meant to be on the screen, and this is one of them. I mean, I listed earlier. This has a sensational cast, but not a single one of them can save this film. It's just really really bad. The only redeeming factor of it is the fact that some of i mean the music is the music and if you've seen the production of cats in the in the west end or on broadway you'll know what you're dealing with and some things are meant to be on the stage and this is one of them it just does not transfer very well at all to the big screen does it Craig? it really doesn't um i'm not sure what tom hooper was really trying to achieve with this movie uh his previous movies uh or movie includes uh the king's speech he has done others but i'm gonna sort of just talk about that one to start off with, mainly because that was a fantastic movie. It was sensational, to be honest with you. Um, and then we have this movie that is just a catastrophe. It really is. Now, everything from the, you know, taking our beloved actors and turning them into cats, but in such a way that with the CGI that it's so off-putting that mm. whilst we're watching the film, we're so distracted by what's going on and how they've ruined the looks of these people and the CGI that's woefully done, um, you kind of lose where you're going with the plot. Yeah. Now, first of all, I want to say, what the hell is a jellicle? It's a type of cat, I kind of assumed. But as we said in the synopsis of the film, it's a tribe of cats. Mm. I didn't get that from the film. I just thought it was a type of cat. I didn't realise it was just the tribe that mm. they were referring to. Second of all, I didn't really know what they were doing in the film. Mm. Like, what was going on? They, I knew they were going to some kind of ball and something was going to happen. They were going to elect someone to be something. A, some sort of democratic election of, of some, said cats. Some kind with cats. I wonder if they used the preferential ballot. But, but it didn't <laughs> seem like it. Proportional representation. <laughs> but what I didn't get from it, that there were going to be a, this person was going to ascend to some kind of new life almost mm. um but i never took that from the film whatsoever because i was just so bemused by the things that were going on there was no real speaking in the film it was all being sung now whilst the music i'm sure is fantastic on the stage show i don't think it did it justice here on in the film um i think jennifer hudson outdid herself with with the uh, memories yeah but the other actors, um, such as Judy Judy Dench and um, uh, James Corden, Idris Elba, there, there's quite a few going on there. But they, they just felt like they were just, I don't know, they weren't really performing it, were they? It felt such a mismatch of different techniques going on and mm. directing seemed all over the place. Nobody seemed to know what was going on. I mean, the one redeeming factor of this film is Jennifer Hudson's performance of Memories. It's powerful. It's it's a real great vocal from Jennifer Hudson. And she does really smash that out of the park. But you see that in the trailer. And if you want to if you want to see that, you can just YouTube it or download the album. The weird thing about this film is, and the only way I can put it into perspective, is to say the best way to watch it is with your eyes closed. Because what is unfolding yeah. on the on the screen is so hideous. And so there's so much sexual tension between these it's cats. It's strangely sexual, isn't it? It and is. It's really and you've got appropriate. Rebel, Rebel Wilson removing a, her cat suit to reveal yet another cat suit underneath. Yeah, it's basically her fur. And, yeah. she, and, and at first you think that's just a cat 
a cat's fur. And then so all of a sudden she unzips her fur, which is just mm. so unnerving and so strange that it yeah. just doesn't seem right. Idris Elba is wearing clothes for a majority of the film yeah. and then all of a sudden derobes those clothes. And, and he is just naked. And although cats, naked. you know, you don't see cats walking around regular cats in clothes. He was in clothes and then there was no clothes. And I'm like, goodness me, Idris Elba is naked. Judy Dench looks like she's wearing a fur coat, which is yeah. supposed to be her, her own fur I suppose her cat fur mm. but her hands are human hands yeah which is slightly strange because everyone else seems to have cat hands almost well not paws but they have human hands but they have fur all over their hands yeah. where Judy Dench doesn't have fur on her hands there are normal human hands it's so strange I feel sorry for Francesca Hayward who is a professional dancer yeah. and she's come into the film singing and dancing but you don't really get a sense of just how amazing she is as a dancer um, I think Floss managed to sum this up really, really well. Um, I've got a clip here I recorded earlier after I came out of the film as um, I bumped into her and she really sums it up great. Um, so this is Floss, um, who is on the podcasting team, talking about cats. One issue is when you watch a show live, you respect what the performers are doing in the moment, whereas, you know, in a film inherently it was put together over months and so that, like, the respect is gone because it's not a thing they have just produced, which is the whole point of musicals, but it's happening there. The other thing is, when you're watching a show, like a musical, you'd kind of... The whole thing is there. It's you look at what you want to look at and in a musical adapted to film... You've got the director choosing what you look at, mm. and that kind of doesn't always work um, because when you look at choreography, you're supposed to look at the whole body and what the whole body is doing, not the director being like, now I'm going to close up on this angle of this leg. Um, so that kind of killed some of my appreciation of the dancing. All the, all the actors were trying so hard. It was a massive shame for people like Francesca Hayward and... Um, Jennifer Hudson almost made my brother cry at the same time that he was laughing everything else that was happening. Um, Judy Dench, first person monologue to the camera, horrible, yeah. didn't like it. Rebel Wilson, unzipping her skin, didn't like that at all. Twice. Yeah. When, when did she put the skin back on? Yeah, exactly. I would like to know. Um, Idris Elba, wearing clothes for the whole thing and then suddenly not wearing clothes, <laughs> didn't like that. Um, Taylor Swift's accent, when she said... His brow is deeply lined with thought. Didn't like that. Um, oh, I've got so many thoughts. Sorry, I'm rambling. Yeah. Oh, that was horrible. Um, we did it for like two seconds. That was a bit where Ian McAllen pushes someone. He pushes Ray Winston off a pier, doesn't he? Yeah. And then he's looking directly into the camera, and it was really awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Come join. No, I was going to say. So, have you seen the play? Yeah. Does that fight on the boat and the whole kidnapping thing, does that actually happen? No, none of that, that happens. Added to the film? That was added to try and give the film some kind action, of yeah. thrust of a plot, which highlighted even more that it doesn't work as a film. Um, you know, I have so many things I could say. <laughs> so that was Floss. As you can tell, didn't like the film. No. Um, I just wanted to say as well, it's brilliant this week to have lots of interaction from people on the team, from people listening at home. If you do want to be on the podcast, please do contact us. Send us an audio clip. We'll try and include it. The best way I can describe this film, Craig, is, you know, it's, it, it needs to be seen in the theatre. You need to be there. You need to see the dancing. You need to hear the vocals live. You need to understand that physicality and experience that. And I have no doubt that if you were a fly on the wall in production, seeing the dancing, 
seeing the physicality and seeing these set pieces unfold. Perhaps live, they would have looked okay, but it doesn't transfer to the big screen. It's like a firework display. When you're at a firework display, you can see, hear, and smell the fireworks. You're there. These people who record firework displays on your phone, if you then watch that firework display back on your phone, you're like... I remember it being much better, and that's exactly what this is like. It's like a firework display that has been recorded on a mobile phone, and you're watching it back. It just does not work. There is an analogy for you, Craig. That's a this, great analogy. And this week, it is not a food analogy. No, it's not. I mean, you're, you're so good at doing food analogies, usually. You got one now for this, I mean, I've, I could... I could ing- um, yeah, no. I mean, it's it's like... A McDonald's. Okay, right. You know, you know when you go to a McDonald's drive through and say they've just given you fresh chips, you know, when they come out really hot and the yeah. burger's really hot, you've then got a half an hour drive home. You drive it home, it's cold. It's just not the same. That is what this yeah. is. It is a cold, stale McDonald's. It needs to be fresh. It needs to be seen in the theatre. We have been very, very critical of this. By the way, this is not a criticism of Cats the Musical. This is not a criticism of Andrew Lloyd Webber. This isn't a criticism of T.S. Eliot. This is a criticism of the filmmaker um, and those surrounding this entire production what have you done? I mean, Floss did continue. Um, she did send me some more, a little bit more about um, what she thought of the film. And what she she really does hit the nail on the head here. Like, all the performers were in different wavelengths. Dench and McKellen were treating it like a Shakespearean play. Mm. Um, Idris Elba was doing panto, apparently. Um, <laughs> Jennifer Hudson was going for another Oscar, whilst Corden and Rebel Wilson were doing a Saturday Night Live skit. Um, and Taylor Swift thought she was at the Grammys. So, <laughs> basically... <laughs> yeah, it, that's brilliant. It's the director who is at, to blame here, without a doubt, mm. unless there is other things going on at play that are in the background that is yeah. harpering his creativity and i think one of those things might just be the cgi and the way that they got this film out there now i didn't like the aspect ratio in terms of the cat's size against the physics and the um physics and the size of of the things that were in the real in the world so things like a spoon seemed to be larger than a cat at one point Mm. yet a mouse in proportion to the cat was very, very tiny. It just didn't make sense. It was all over the shop. Like you said, the aspect ratio. We had we had singing and dancing mice. We had stampeding, parading cockroaches, which the cats ate. I mean, I, di- I didn't know that cats like cockroaches, but, you know, each to their own. Also, they tried to be funny. Mm. They tried to be funny, and it was really unfunny. There was one line where Rebel Wilson was like, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue? Long pause. And yeah. in the cinema, it was like, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue? <coughs> baby crying no laughter no there's just nothing Universal could have done to save this movie they did try um, you know but they just couldn't do it now I think one of the reasons for that is because this is you know supposed to be one of their big Christmases releases Mm. or Christmas releases Um, and it wasn't finished it just wasn't finished at all and uh, that they had no choice just to get it out Um, but they did release a version 2.0 to go into into the into the theatres an updated version that's supposed to have better CGI now I haven't seen the first version but I can confirm without a shadow of a doubt the CGI on this film is still woeful and one of the things that you see is like their feet touching the ground they don't really touch the ground it's just sort of floating Lev- it's very very strange there was a scene where Rebel Wilson sort of 
pirouettes off the table, but just floats down off the table. Now, yeah. I'm sure she's supposed to be held, but it, they don't seem to be touching her. Or she just sort of, it's just very, just doesn't work whatsoever. It's just a failed production in mm. every sense, from from the acting all the way through to the directing, to the script, to, to the music, to just everything about it is just wrong and off and just not right. It, the trumpet was so worthy coming out for this film because mm. it is terrible. It really is. It's so off-putting. It's just unbelievably bad. I'm just going on and on and on. Do not go and see this movie. Wow. Say what you really think, Craig. It's crap. Yeah. It's 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 a real st- it's a real stinky film. Um, and it's a real shame. You know, when when this was in the pipeline and and it was coming out, there was obviously you know there was Oscar buzz. People were talking about being a major contender in award season. You look at the cast and you think this could be sensational, but somehow they've managed to make something that is not only unenjoyable but also very disturbing at the same time. It's just a horror. Yeah, it's, it's a, a it's, it's a, a horror. it's a horror. It genuinely is. I was terrified watching mm. this film because. It was just off-putting. You know, you shouldn't be seeing people in this way whatsoever. Cats with human faces. Yeah. I mean, was... when we saw when the trailer dropped, it was it was horrendous. Yeah. And people were like, it could be okay. There must be something that ties it all together. must have a redeeming feature and grace. But it didn't. But it didn't. All the best bits are in the trailer. And look, if if you want to see cats, go and see it in the West End or, 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 or don't bother. It's not worth seeing in the cinema. But the thing is, though, every, every time I'm at the cinema, the screens are selling out. Um, my screen that I was in, despite it being a small screen, every seat was pretty much filled. Terrible at the box office, though. But Craig. it's still doing badly. I'm yeah. not sure how that works. Neither am I. It's some sort of maybe. Maybe it was a figment of your imagination. I was surrounded but by no, people. No, I, I think people are going to see it, but it's not doing as well as because I mean it is in smaller screens now. Mm. Um, it's definitely not doing as well. But look, we could talk about how bad Cats is for a long, long time, but I think it's time to round the review off, and I'm going to round it off by asking you, Craig, Cats, is it worth it? No. David, is Cats worth it? No. There we go. And that, that was <laughs> our review of Cats. <laughs> <laughs> It's now time for our final review on this week's show, and I'll be reviewing it myself. It is Spies in Disguise. So what is this film about? Well, super spy Lance Sterling, played by Will Smith, and scientist Walter Beckett, played by Tom Holland, are almost exact opposites. Lance is smooth, suave, and debonair. Walter, well, he's not. But when events take an unexpected turn, this unlikely duo is forced to team up for the ultimate mission that will require an almost impossible disguise, transforming Lance into the brave, fierce, majestic pigeon. (laughs) Walter and Lance suddenly have to work as a team or the whole world is in peril. Before I dive into a review, let's take a little listen to a clip. Wait, 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 wait. please don't close that door. Not interested. Listen, you gotta hear me Whatever it is, no. Look, I've been working on this thing at home, right? It is gonna change spying forever. Imagine... If I can make you, wait for it, drumroll please, disappear. Disappear? Yeah, disappear. Why are you saying it like that? For effect. I'm totally excited about it. It's called Biodynamic Concealment. Boom, mic drop. Huh? 
conceal this? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't need a bulletproof suit. You wouldn't need exploding cufflinks. You could blend in anywhere. What if you were totally... Ow! Invisible. Oh, wow, dude. That's a mess. So that's a clip from the film where Lance Sterling, played by Will Smith, and Tom Holland, who plays Walter Beckett, meet for the first time. And really, this film is about, like it said in the synopsis there, about two completely opposite people. Will Smith plays or voices Lance Sterling, who's this suave, sophisticated, really, you know, he's the world's top spy. And there's uh, early in the film, when he comes back from completing one of his first missions, we see him fist bumping people, shaking their hands, and people are like, like, oh, wow, you know, never wash that hand again. And like the whole place is in awe of him. You know, mm. Men in Black, when they come back into their hub and there's lifts going up and down and everyone on computers, yeah. it's stuff like that. It's like the home of this spy service. Whereas Walter Beckett is this um, innocent child. And we the film actually opens up with him as a young child experimenting in his home as a very small child, making these gadgets. And his mum, who's a police officer, says to him, one day your gadgets are going to end up saving the world. And by... Uh, a strange and bizarre set of circumstances, these two characters end up meeting and Will Smith's character, Lance Sterling, is basically framed for something that he hasn't done. So the spy agency is now going after him and what he really needs to do is disappear. And who can help him with that? Well, it's Walter Beckett and his incredible science. He's a really loves science, Craig, and his mm. science experiment that can make you disappear. And what we have is we have a scene where his pet pigeon, yes, he has a pet pigeon, um, <laughs> gives him, or she gives him one of um, her feathers and he drops it in this liquid and it disappears. And then Lance Sterling turns up and he's like, Walter, I need you to help me disappear. And they start chatting and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm really thirsty. Takes the potion off of him, which is a clear liquid, and drinks it. And what does it do, Craig? It doesn't make him disappear, but it turns him into a pigeon. And they use this as a as a way of becoming one of, you know, a really interesting way of becoming a spy. Because like they explain in the film... Pigeons are the most widespread bird in the world. Wherever you go, when I was in Morocco, Marrakesh recently, it was like, oh, more pigeons. You go to Venice, <laughs> Italy, pigeons. Barcelona, if you remember, I had a pigeon on my on head. your head, yes. That video um, was great. And... What is this film like? Well, it gets a very solid uh, 76% from the critics and it gets 91% from the audience. And I saw this on my own uh, and it was quite a, a small screening, but it was absolutely full of children all with their popcorn and their sweets. So there's lots of rummaging going on and lots of talking and you sort of forgive that. There was chaos as well. I was well. going to say, what happened in that screening? Well, I got there and there were two children who had about eight bags of popcorn each. Well, they didn't have eight bags of popcorn, but they had popcorn they had nachos they had hot dogs they had the lot and they were in my seat and I was like there's no way I'm getting them to move so I'll just sit a couple of rows down of course other people turned up and they're like that's my seat and then I moved and then someone else was in someone else's seat so the whole cinema screening was sat in the wrong seats guys sit in the seats that you pay for otherwise chaos unfolds anyway I did eventually manage to find a seat and I'm pleased I did you know this is more of a kids film than an adults film so what do I mean by that 
something like Frozen 2 is for children, but there's lots of adults themes. There's not many adults themes in this. It's more of a, a real action packed kids adventure. The humor is very much designed for children, mm. but it, I didn't laugh that much, yeah. but all the children in the cinema screen around me were laughing. So it's no Dora the Explorer. No, it's definitely not a Dora the Explorer. There's, there's, there's not much in it for adults, but what adults will get, the pleasure adults will get is from seeing their children enjoy this film. Mm. And they, will enjoy it because it's got a it's got a very solid script um will smith and tom holland give very good performances ben mendelson plays killian who is the um who, who is the bad guy and he gives a really dark gritty and quite scary performance so for very young children it is it is that scary bad guy and overall you know the film was well paced the script was good the animation was vibrant and 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 enjoyable and it was a well paced film um i won't give too much away about the ending but you've got these two opposing characters that think yeah. they don't need each other but actually they come together and they do so what i was going to ask you was the uh, the treatment of the young man the, the, of of the of the young scientist do you feel like um the film accurately represented what it was like to what it's like to be a child scientist was he being bullied in the film yes he was considered weird so that was the that was the that was the title he got all oh, that weird scientist and when he was young and what happens is his mum says to him in the start of the film she gets him to one side and says one day your weirdness will save the world you keep doing what you're doing so does this film um sort of redeem that fact um and that as he gets older yes. people actually appreciate him for what he actually does so children will be able to see you know they can they can have dreams of being a scientist and and not care what other people think is that what it's sort of summarizing yeah absolutely the film is basically saying you know, science can be cool and the way they do all these gadgets that it's like it's almost like an inspector gadget mm. but an animated version and all very james bond-esque all these gadgets they have are really, really exciting and cool. And there is this strange message as well, because all of his gadgets are designed not to hurt people. So there's a message, an underlying, underlying message of forgiveness in there and love. And it, it, it works really well. And it just makes for a very nice, fluffy, enjoyable experience that says, no matter what you want to do, you know, even if you're not the cool Will Smith character, even if you are that geeky, weird scientist, you have a place in the world and you should pursue your dreams. And yeah, it was, it was an enjoyable watch. Cool. Well, definitely worth asking you the question now then, isn't it? Yes, please do. <laughs> Spies in Disguise, David, is it worth it? Yes, look, I would say this is currently out and it is well worth seeing and taking your children. Like I said, for an adult perspective, it's not like a Dora the Explorer or a Frozen 2. I wouldn't suggest adults go and see this on their own. It's more of a children's film, but you will get great enjoyment from seeing your children enjoy this film. I would recommend taking your children to see it. Great, and I think I'll probably go and see it soon as well. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, so this is the end of the show now. It is. What a shame. It is. Well, thank you very much for listening to Week 41. We've had an absolute blast of making it. And if you've enjoyed listening, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? Indeed, it's the best and easiest way to help the podcast grow. If you're a regular listener, why not also become a Patreon supporter? By helping us finance the show, you'll be an elite group of people who will be receiving exclusive content throughout the year. As we've said, and I'd like to reiterate, later in the year, our tiers will be established and some great stuff will be coming 
coming your way. Just use the link that's available in the show's notes. And we really love the interaction we've had on this week's episode. So please do continue to email us at mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. The email address again is mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. Or you can tweet us, Facebook, or slide into our DMs on Instagram. <laughs> the social media links are available on the website, which is isitworthitpodcast.com. And I'm very excited to say that we'll be back this month with more main show reviews along with great bonus content. Please do look out for our next episode of Road to the Oscars. We've also got Cinema at Home and a new monthly show involving the rest of the team. It's going to be really, really good fun making that. Uh, And uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening and take care, guys. Happy New Year to you and we look forward to speaking to you very soon. Goodbye from me and goodbye from me.